Okay, guys, we're in lesson eight. We're plugging right along. We're going to look at wisdom's value for everyday life. And so we're going to look at some specific areas of wisdom that you can apply to your everyday life. And I'll be honest with you, as we begin to look at these, you're going to see that they really do apply to everyday life. We're going to look at the issue of finances. We're going to look at the issue of work. Uh, we're going to look at the issue of dissension, quarreling, and so forth. We're even going to look at the issue of immorality, which is so prevalent, again, in our culture. Now, you say, well, I thought we just looked at immorality and adultery last week with Chapter 5. Yes, we did. But Solomon, in Chapter 5, Chapter 6, Chapter 7, brings it up several times about the issue of adultery. And so we're going to be looking at that issue together Again, as he shares it with us in this passage. So let's first of all look at verses 11, verses 1 through 11, some guidance for avoiding poverty. There is some certain guidance for you and I to avoid poverty. So let's look at what he says in verses 1 through 11. My son, if you become surety for your friends, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger... You are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son. Deliver yourself. If you have come into the hand of your friend, go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to sleep. So your poverty will come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Okay, so let's take a look here. First of all, he's going to talk about, give us a warning against financial entanglements. Verses 1 to 5. He's going to, first of all, talk about the issue of underwriting debts. The biblical phraseology for that is putting up a surety. And our common everyday language today, in our financial circles today, is called co-signing. Everybody familiar with co-signing? He's going to give us a warning about co-signing here. So the first thing he's going to tell us is, by underwriting the debts of another person, you place yourself into a trap. Now, let me just explain something to you. Co-signing is, is a very common thing to happen today, isn't it? And some of you here probably have co-signed for somebody. More than likely, the person you will co-sign for is who? A family member. Uh, in particular, more than likely, the person that you will co-sign for is your child. Uh, in particular, so that they can maybe purchase a vehicle. Or maybe even if they get married, help purchase a home. And so, he's going to talk about here that, you know what, when you do that, you're placing yourself into a trap. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment because what we're going to read here is he's not going to tell you not to do it. Does everybody understand me? The passage isn't going to be a command here 
saying to you, don't do this. As a command. He's going to tell you not to do it as a piece of wisdom. Does everybody understand here? Because we're talking about wisdom literature here. We're talking about Proverbs. And what can you do with Proverbs? You can either accept them and apply them, or you can what? Well, ignoring is reject. I don't like that word. You understand? You either accept or reject it. There is no ignoring when it comes to the Word of God. Ignoring is an act in itself of rejection. Ignoring in itself is an act of rejection. So, when it comes to a proverb, and remember, we've been talking about it all along when Solomon's been saying, Lord, to his son, apply wisdom to your life. It'll add days. It'll add prosperity. Here he's giving you a very practical application to how it's going to add prosperity to your life by not putting yourself on the line for someone else. By not putting yourself on the line for someone else. Because when you do that, you are really putting yourself into a trap. So, okay, so what is the practical wisdom of this? So, for instance, I want to help my son. Well, can I be honest with you? You maybe need to express some discernment whether whether or not you want to do it for your son. If your son exhibits behavior that he doesn't know how to handle your money, his money, you may want to be careful putting your name on the line for him because you're the one who's going to pay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just, you understand, we want to help our children. But sometimes that may not be helping them, that may be enabling them. See, you've got to, you've got to express wisdom because when you underwrite for someone else, you're placing yourself into a trap because you might be the most frugal person there is. You might know how to handle your money very well, but the person you're underwriting for, they maybe don't know nothing. And to be honest with you, here's their thought. Well, if I can't do it, mom will. Cause they're gonna... And listen, the bank, who's the bank going to go after? Well, if they can't get it out of the one, who are they going to go after then? Yeah, and the reason why you co-sign is because the one doesn't have the credit or the collateral to be able to get it in the first place. They're taking your name because you do have the credit or the collateral. And so the bank's thinking, can't get it out of him, we'll definitely get it out of her. See, there's wisdom in what Solomon is saying. Now, is it saying to you that you can't do that? Does it say that here, guys? But what's it saying? Be aware... Be aware that when you do that, what? You're placing yourself into a trap. You're really at the mercy of who? Yeah, your friend or your, or your family member. Hey, can I be honest with you? This issue probably has divided more families than anything. This issue has divided more families than anything. Because let me just stop for a moment. Everybody understand finances are a big issue in family disputes? Big three reasons why marriages break up. Number one reason? Money. Money. Big three reasons why there's problems within a home, within a family, people not talking to each other. Money. See, Solomon's not talking out of the side of his mouth here. He's expressing some wisdom that you and I need to learn. And so, by underwriting death of another person, you place yourself into a trap. And here's why it's a trap. It's a trap because you have no control over the situation. 
Because here, here's another scenario. Here's another scenario to you because that's the extreme of a child or a person who doesn't know how to handle their money and hopefully you're wise enough to say, no, we're not going to do that. But let's say you have a child or a person who just landed a great job and they're making the big bucks in the area. Now, what's an average wage here in the area, guys? It's not very much these days. Probably ten. Well, let's say they, let's say they by chance land a job and they're getting twenty dollars an hour. That's a good job, isn't it? Twenty bucks an hour. And so then they say, "Oh, dad, but I don't, I, mom, dad, or a friend, I don't have. I, I'm making good money, but the bank won't let me. GMAC won't let me buy that new truck." And you're thinking, well, you know, they're bringing the money in. They're doing okay. You know, yeah, I'll go co-sign for them. No problem. Yeah, there is a problem. Six months later, he gets a pink slip. Or the company shuts down and moves to Mexico or Taiwan or somewhere. Now who's left holding the bag for who? The guy who just got the new truck. See, here's the thing. You have no control over the situation. Anybody of you have any control over the situations in your life? You've got control that you're, you're guaranteed you're going to have a job. Is, is anybody sure of that? No. No. And, and here, excuse me, I hate to scare some of you. Even in these days, the pension that you've been giving to in the company may not necessarily be there anymore. See, there's no surety. There's no sure thing anymore. There's no security. And so here's the thing. He's saying now, if you do end up in this situation, here's what he says in verses 3 to 5. If you do end up in a situation where you have put your name down on the line and the person is not doing right or whatever, here's what he says. You are to do everything you can to get released from that pledge. See, now you need to do everything. And notice the words he uses. He says, go to your friend, plead with them. Go, to, you know, go and just do whatever you can to get out of that circumstance because you're the one who's going to get affected. Do everything you can to get out of it. It may even mean you going to your buddy who's got that truck and saying, you got to sell it. Well, I'm not going to get anything back. Well, that's fine, but I'm going to get out of this. Trade it in, get a Pinto. You guys remember what a Pinto is? Okay. I mean, trade it in, get something. The Chevy version, I think, was a Vega. You know. But, I mean, trade it in and get a, get a Pinto or something, but if they still exist. You know, the encouragement is to seek release. To get out from it. Look, guys, can I be honest with you? Here's the emphasis of these first five verses. Be very wise in your financial dealings. Be very wise in your financial dealing. You're not forbidden. You understand here? It would be easy if God just said, don't do it, period. But what he's saying is, look, if you do this, this is what will happen. He gives you choice. But you've got to be wise. You've got to be wise. Okay, so then notice now he's going to talk about laziness. Verses 6 through 11, he's going to talk about laziness and he's going to give us the example of the ant. And here's what he says. Solomon calls the lazy person to learn from the example of an ant. Solomon calls a lazy person to learn from 
the example of an ant. Here, what we're getting into right now in these verses is, is often been referred to as the Judeo-Christian work ethic. How many of you have heard that before, that terminology? It's really what made our country great, is the whole concept of working, of that you've got to work. And that's what he's talking about here in this passage, is the Judeo-Christian work ethic that we often refer to. It comes right out of this passage. Because we're going to look here at the example of the ant, and here's what he says. The ant, by its own ambition works to store provisions for the winter. The ant doesn't need somebody kicking him in the morning saying, get out of bed, you lazy bum, go to work, we need the cash. In fact, the ant, does he have a leader? No, there's no captain over the ants. The ant just goes and does it for the sake of the whole colony. For the sake of the whole colony. Hey, can I remind you, there's a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that says that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel. You're worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. See, the ant is the example we need to follow, and the ant, what, on his own ambition, does what he needs to do, and he stores up for the winter. He stores up for the winter. And here's the exhortation now, verse 9 to 11, he says this, Solomon is urging the lazy person to get out of bed and start working. Get out of bed and start working. Get out of bed. Start doing it. That's, you know, I appreciate, you know, I've met some folks, there even some guys here in this church that if they knew that the next day they didn't have a job, they would be out the next day looking for something else. Whatever it took to do what it took to do. And that was, can I be honest with you? And here's how they got that. Did that just come into their own mind? How did they get that kind of an attitude? By example, but also what? Training. They were brought up that way. It was instilled in them from childhood on to what? Work. Work, because nobody else is going to what? Do it for you. You know, and so he's saying, look, you lazy sluggard, get out of bed, get to work. And listen, can I be honest with you? Yeah, it stinks about the kind of jobs we have in our area. It stinks. It ain't like the old days anymore in Kerbinsville anymore. But can I be honest with you? It's all we got. And the bills keep coming in. So you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. So then he goes on and says this, warns that if you don't do it, here's what he says. He he warns him, Solomon warns that poverty will come upon that person suddenly. Poverty will come upon that person suddenly. And hey, doesn't it happen? Boom, it's just gone. Well, you know, I think I'll just rest in my in my winter vacation money, unemployment. Well, there's even a stopping point for unemployment. I, you know, I've got enough saved up, enough nest egg that I can kind of just rest in it until something appears. Even that runs out after a while. And can I be honest with you, the price of things isn't going down, is it? Bread is twice what it was a year and a half ago. A loaf of bread. So, I mean, 
It will come upon you suddenly. It will come upon you suddenly. So there's the exhortation. Now he gets into verse 12 and 9 through 19, and he's going to talk about dissension. So let's look at verses 12 through 19. Hey, if I stepped on your toes today, okay. A worthless person is a wicked man, walks, in, walks with a perverse mouth, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his art. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Okay, so let's look at this. First of all, the warning against dissension. He's going to talk, first of all, about the one who brings dissension. He's going to describe the person who spreads dissension. Now, we are a Baptist congregation here, are we not? And if you have been in Baptist circles long enough, you know that there is a common chronic problem that we have in Baptist churches. What is it, anybody? No, not just gossip. we got something even more. The community knows Baptist churches for one thing. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. No, no, not, well, not just eating. Okay. Did you hear about the guy who was on a desert island and he was rescued? Well, he said, wow, let me show you my island before we leave. Let me show you everything on the island here. And he said, well, this is where, I, this is where my house was and this is where I did all my cooking. And he said, this is where my church was. And he said... Really? What's that building over there? He said, well, that's where I used to go until we had a fight. Okay, so Baptist churches are known for what, guys? Dissension. You know, they, they say you take you get, got two Baptists together, you've got three opinions. Okay? <laughs> okay. All right, you see my point. So, here's what we're going to do is, so in your mind... As you've been remembering, as you think back in the years, and praise the Lord we're not like that now. And praise, the, praise to the Lord that we don't get like that. Alright? But in your mind, I want you to think back to churches where you've been in, or church discussions, we'll call it discussions, intense fellowship. Not intimate fellowship, but intense fellowship. I want you to think back in your mind, and as I read through this, I want you to think about the key players. The key players. So let's look at what he says here. First of all, the description. Verses 12 through 14. He is known by his corrupt mouth, which is filled with false and deceptive words. A dissenter is known by his false, corrupt mouth. He's a deceiver. He says one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Everybody understand that? He says one thing to one person and he says another thing to another person. He walks with a perverse mouth. Here's the other thing. His body language contradicts his words. Notice the description here. He winks with his eye. He shuffles his feet. And what else? He points with his fingers. His body language is ex expresses something completely different than what he's saying. How many of you have met people like that? 
All of us have met people like that. And especially if you know that, and you, you, like, you just can't trust anything they say, can you? You can't. All right? So, and then here's, here's the other thing. He plots and stirs up dissension. He plots and stirs up dissension. This guy is, is one of those guys that likes to just stir the pot. I want you to think for a moment. Think back to some church situations that you've been in. Have you met people like that? You have, haven't you? And look, it doesn't even matter. Maybe they, they stirred the pot with one pastor, then they got another pastor, and everybody likes him, but that guy for some reason has got to stir the pot with what? That pastor too. Always stirring the pot. Always stirring the pot. So he's plot, plotting and stirring up dissension. Now here's, verse 15 says something that we need to be aware of concerning, and that's the destruction of the center. Here's what he says. That he will bring destruction upon himself that will be sudden. He will bring destruction upon himself that will be sudden. He'll bring destruction upon himself that will be sudden. Guys like that, can I be honest with you, it looks like they're always out of it. They're, they're, they're never touched by it. They're like Teflon men. No matter what's going on, they always kind of just keep smelling like a rose. But can I be honest with you, the Bible's very clear that one day it'll just come upon them suddenly. They'll be destroyed by their own, by their own actions. Take heart in that. Because sometimes we look and say, Lord, you know, I'm faithful to you. I do what's right, but there's this guy or this gal, she's always doing, she's always, always. Why is she getting away with that, Lord? We have a passage like this that says, you know what, there is a day of reckoning. And when it comes, it comes suddenly. So then notice verse 16 through, 16 through 19 is some behavior that God despises. Here's what I want you to do. You want to know what God hates? Do you really want to know what he despises? Do you want to know what's an abomination to him? There are seven things listed in this passage that he hates beyond all things. And I want you to notice what's not in the list. I want you to take notice of what's not in the list. So let's notice with me. First thing, the conduct that he despises. Solomon points out that there are things that God despises and hates. There are things that God despises and hates. So let's look at them. Verse 17 through 19. First one is this. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are the proud look that suggests arrogant ambition. Haughty eyes are the proud look that suggests Arrogant ambition. One of the things that God hates more than anything is prideful ambition. Arrogant ambition. Why would he hate that? Why, would, why do you think God hates arrogant, prideful ambition? Well, emphasis on himself and not him. That's good, Bruce. Anybody else want to expand beyond Bruce? Because there's actually two parts of this. Bruce got the first part. It's not just an emphasis on him, but also an emphasis on who else. Well, not Satan. Let me help you a little bit. Well, no, listen, let me help you. Let's take what Bruce said. Bruce said, because he's putting the emphasis on himself and not God. That's one part. The other part is, he's putting the emphasis on himself and not who else. 
Others, you're right. Because remember, what's the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The emphasis of Scripture is a commitment to God and what? A commitment to others around you. And so arrogant pride, prideful arrogance, prideful arrogant ambition is focused on who? Me, myself, and I. The unholy three. And so... We see that. Then here's the next thing that he hates is a lying tongue. A lying tongue literally means a tongue of deception. A lying tongue here means a tongue of deception. We're not talking about some, somebody who will, who will occasionally lie because everyone occasionally lies. But we're talking about someone who is marked by a tongue of deception who is continually what? Lying. They don't even know what the truth is anymore. They just keep inventing lies. Hands that shed blood is the next one. Hands that shed blood refer to murder. Refers to murder. Let's go on. The heart that devises wicked schemes refers to one who plots evil refers to one who plots evil. So this is the person who's always plotting something bad, who's always in their mind thinking about doing something bad, okay, or getting back at people or whatever. Feet that rush to evil is the next thing that he hates. This refers to, describes the one who enthusiastically participates in sin. God hates and despises people who enthusiastically are like there to do harm, there to do wrong. He he just he, he hates those kind of people. They're enthusiastically seeking to do sin. False witness, I think everybody understands what a false witness is. A false witness refers to one who commits perjury. God because despi- why do you think God despises false witnesses? What is corrupted when you have a false witness? Justice is corrupted. And he despises that. He hates that because justice is corrupted because of false witnesses. And then finally, and this is the one that we need to understand in our circle of churches, isn't it? Here's the one he says here. Stirring up dissension, stirring up of dissension describes one who initiates contentions and quarrels. The focus of this person isn't the good of the whole, the focus of this person is, my, my, what I think needs to happen isn't happening, and so we better make sure it happens. And that's the kind of attitude we're talking about here. So then the last 15 verses, which is where we're going to spend the last little bit of our time here, verses 20 to 35, is again the warning against immorality. So let's look at that. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are a way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by the means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. 
and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise the thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who, he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased through though you give many gifts. So let's look here. We've got six things we want to look at here. First of all, the call to heed. First of all, he's going to start out this section with an exhortation once again to listen. So here's what he says. We're going to go through these real quick. Once again, Solomon calls his son to heed his parents' instruction. Listen to me. Pay attention. The world is not a wonderful place. It will destroy you. Listen to me, Solomon is saying. And so then here he gives a call to apply instruction. Here's what he says. The application of the instruction will guard his life. The application of the instructions will guard his life. If you apply what you hear, it will guard your life. If you apply, it will guard your life. And then notice the nature of the instruction. Instruction brings, instruction brings guidance and direction in life. Instruction brings guidance and direction in life. See, God's wisdom, God's word, or even, can I be honest with you, even to a lesser degree, the wisdom that you give your children because of the experiences you have gone through will what? Guard your life. You understand what I'm saying? Will guard your life. And so, here's what he also says. They will also protect you from adultery. So then, now, verses 25 through 35, he's going to give a warning about being seduced. And again, he's using a female here, but you know what, ladies? You can put a male in there. We're not just picking on the ladies here. You can also put a man in there, because he can be a seductor. And he can flatter you. You know, and so forth. So, here's the admonition. Verse 25, he says, Solomon tells his son not to lust after the immoral woman. Don't lust after the immoral woman. Don't lust after her. Then he goes on in verse 26 and he says, The sin of adultery requires a high price. The sin of adultery requires a high price, even the price of one's life. Look, he's pretty descriptive here in how he talks about the guy who goes to the immoral woman. He says that his life is reduced down to a crust of bread. What do you think that means? Anybody, real quick, what do you think it means that their life is reduced to a crust of bread? Okay, it's worthless. Yes. Yes, it's worthless. You know, like, kids are funny, aren't they? Because they want a sandwich and they want you to cut off the crust. You know? They want you to cut off... So it's worthless. 
Then he goes on and he says, here's the punishment. Verse 27 through 35, two things I want you to see here. And that's this. The punishment for adultery is inevitable. The committing adultery is different. Remember what he said. If a guy steals because he's trying to feed his family, though he gets punished, everybody understands that. But if a guy gets in adultery, there's no removal of that shame. There's no removal of that shame. So here's what he says. The adulterer destroys his or her life spiritually and socially. The adulterer destroys his or her life spiritually and socially. It affects, when I, when I say destroy, don't take that literal because you think, oh, I'm doomed now. No, that's not what I'm saying. But let me tell you something, it does affect it. And socially it affects it, doesn't it? Even though our culture says it's okay, is it really okay? Is it really okay? No, nobody, I mean, even, you know, nobody. It's not okay. It affects you. So, okay, so next week we're going to look at, boy, lesson seven, wisdom's value against the seductress, against one more lesson where he deals with this issue. Now, you say, why is he doing this? Can I be honest with you? Because nothing has changed. Our cultures are the same. There are constants. The same sins that we struggle with today are the same sins that 3,000 years ago Solomon struggled with. And so he's giving us wisdom. Okay, let's close our time and get ready for our morning worship service.